privilege to have the opportunity to have on today's program Mr Arnold Vitoko, Managing Director of Diversified Family Office Vitoko Enterprises. Arnold, it's taken a few years but, but we got there in the end. Thanks for, for your time. Let's start, if we could, with your family background. Your father, Dominic, migrated to Australia from Italy in 1955. Tell us about your father, Dominic, your mother, Maria, and, and perhaps the Vitoko family history. Well, thanks for having me, Rob, and welcome to our, our, our estate. Dad and Mum were uh, World War veterans, uh, World War um, uh, immigrants. Um, you know, the Second World War uh, really devastated the part of Italy that my family came from, um, and there was just no opportunities there. And so uh, my father came from a large family, and uh, when he was 19, he had the opportunity to either stay in Italy and not have much work, uh, and not much opportunity, or immigrate uh, to follow his brother and his sister. So his brother went to Philadelphia in uh, in, in, in the States, um, and his sister lived here in Sydney. And so he followed uh, on a ship called the Neptune back then. It was like a 30-day trip, um, and, uh, and, and literally came with his suitcase in his hand, no education and no money, and lived with his sister at uh, Moorbank, Liverpool, for uh, you know, for the first part of his uh, stay in Australia. And tell us about uh, some of those experiences, the, the move to Australia, how challenging was it and, and how did he and the family overcome some of those early hurdles? Look, the reality of it is it's actually impossible. It is really difficult. It's like picking me up and dropping me in China and say, there you go, start, right? You know, no education, no opportunity, no, no, no skills, very limited English. Um, and so it was a little bit of just ambition and, you know, Australia was a time of great opportunity. Um, you know, Italy was war-torn and destroyed and so, you know, they didn't have running water or plumbing or, you know, cooking was done on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a fire. And so coming to Australia and seeing what Australia had to offer was just opportunistic. And so, you know, moving to uh, Western Sydney or southwestern Sydney in particular, um, and then, you know, grew from there. Tell us about your formative experiences growing up in Australia, your, your first exposure to uh, school and, and your family's Italian background. How, how difficult was that trying to fit in? Look, it was um, not easy. It wasn't easy to be an immigrant Italian um, um, that, you know, sort of looked or ate a bit differently to everybody else. But, um, you know, my experiences growing up, my father started... Uh, uh, at Clark Bricks at Moorbank. And he didn't like working in a factory environment or for a boss. And so he, he had a friend that, you know, was doing small concrete jobs on the weekend. He said, oh, I can do that, I'll be a concreter. So off he went and, you know, they did little footpath jobs and he reckons for the first six months he never got paid because <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing. So he really, you know, but he kept at it. And, uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, the concrete led to, to building and construction. And for me personally, you know, from the time I can remember till the time I went to school, till I went to boarding school, I was always on a building site. You know, we grew up just concreting, shoveling, working. That was, you know, to me it was just second nature. So I would do that before going to school and after going to school for a long time. Tell us about your experiences at school, St Gregory School in, in Campbelltown, where you were a boarder between 1977 and, and 1982. What stands out when you reflect on that period today? 
I get asked that a lot and you know my mother thought it was good for me because I have three sisters and the only son and so it was always expected that I would take over or be part of the family business and so they had to toughen me up you know and they wanted me to be a lawyer or something you know more, more exotic than just a concreter and a builder and um, so I, I, I went to boarding school when I was 12 um, and it was life-changing. No, it, you know, we taught you the Marist community is an excellent environment for anyone to grow up. It's a different era then too. It was more run by the Marist brothers. Today it's more, um, more, more commercialised. But you know, you, you literally stayed there for six weeks. You did not see TV. You did not have computers in those days. You, you didn't have newspapers. You were literally just had your friends, your mates and the college environment. And it shaped you to become what you are today, what it did for me. What were the, the influences at that period of time in your life? Obviously, you had your father who initially started as a concreter and then became uh, into, got into the building game and into the construction game. Where did you see your, your life sort of heading at, at that age of, say, 18 or 19? For me, it was never any doubt. Like, for me, it was just natural to be... Uh, following on in construction because my weekends were repainting units that we owned or you know the maintenance that had to be done or the lawns that had to be mowed on the properties and so you know I can remember you know I was sort of a you know I'm a bit stronger than I am now back then and, and uh, my father would say look on the weekend we need to have every bathroom with 10 buckets of sand because the tiler starts on Monday so there's no lifts and carrying the buckets up tip it out go back downstairs you know that, that was normal to me. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it gave me a lot of discipline. And so you finished school, you're working in the family business. So this would have been sort of the, the mid-1980s. You meet your wife, Irene, and you go on to have two sons together. What were you learning in that period of your life, say the mid-1980s, that, that have helped set you up to where you are today? For us, um, it, it was all about, you know, being part of the family business, being dedicated to the family. We didn't go out. We didn't, we didn't, you know, socialise. We, we didn't go to restaurants. We, you know, we worked six and a half days a week, both of us. Uh, we raised the two sons, uh, Dominic and Anthony, who are part of our business today. And, and for me, that was just a natural progression. I, I learnt the business trade. I learnt the, you know, my father and I back then did a lot of contract work and spec work. And so it was a bit of a, you felt comfortable dealing with a father and son. My father had a way of making you feel very comfortable. And so we won a lot of tenders because they saw the father and son team. We could trust these people. It'd be done on time, done properly, etc. So we had a reputation of that. Um, and that, that helped you know, shape a lot of uh, the business principles. Just before we move on, one last one about your father. How did he go from a concreter to owning his own building firm to then becoming quite a prolific developer in the southwest of Sydney? I think two and a half thousand odd apartments, uh, commercial buildings, office buildings. How did he go about building that? In the 60s, the early 60s, Liverpool was, you know, was, was the last frontier. It was a growing uh, metropolis. It was, it was um, uh, opportune for people to be able to own a, a lot, etc. But uh, a lot of properties were four-storey walk-up units. And so in those days, there was no such thing as capital gains tax. Um, and so if you built a building, you held it for a short period of time, the money was yours, basically. And so my father built a lot of apartments in Liverpool, four-storey walk-up units, well, they called them flats back then. Um, and and that, that's where he really, you know, excelled. And so, um, you know, he'd be rolling on one after the other. And in those days, the bank was a big part of his business. 
Um, the bank manager of the day, the Commonwealth Bank on the Main Street of Liverpool, was, was God. Right? If, if he said yes and he wanted to lend you the money, it was as simple as that, right? Um, and th that was also part of the success, that they believed in him. Um, and he started off small and then grew and grew and grew. Do you still get a chance to, to go past any of those buildings? All the time, all the time. Like, we can't go anywhere in Liverpool and say, well, you know, I poured that slab there 35 years ago, you know. That's where I fell off and hurt myself, you know. And my father did that. And, oh, we should have kept that building because look at it today. That happens quite a bit. Yeah. Let's talk about a pivotal moment in your career. It's, it's 1989. You identified the growth of southwestern Sydney firsthand. You saw a, a potential to transform a, a five-acre uh, block of land. Walk us through 1989, that opportunity and, and what happened next. We were in construction all our life and building and we did very well out of it but, but I used to see other people, other families where they had large tracts of land or land and see the capital growth in that, right? And so my father explained to me that he bought his first block of land with Dr Wild Delaunay who was a local GP that looked after a lot of the Italian community at Ingleburn at uh, Blackwood Avenue, Casula, at Liverpool. Um, he bought his first block of dirt for 500 pound, right? So it's about 1960, 61. And if you take every 10 years, that land has just gone from, you know, in, in, in 1970, that block was worth, you know, $6,000. And then in 1980, that same block is worth, um, $20,000, right? 1990, $60,000. Today, that block is worth a million dollars. Now, I don't know too many investments that from 500 pounds can get to a million bucks in you know, 50 years. And so I recognise the power of compound in particular and the power of land. Most people know that the underlying land is, holds its value better than a building over time. And so a lot of people don't invest in those sorts of things because they don't have any return. And so you'll buy a block of dirt, there's no return on it, it just costs you rates, money and maintenance, and someone else will make the money or a family member down the track. So not too many people have long-term views. Uh, and that, that's part of the thing that attracted us uh, in, in, in uh, land development. And you purchased that block of land, that five-acre parcel of land with Tony Pirich, who I believe was a friend of your father's, purchased it for, for a million dollars. You'd always had a grand vision for the site. I think there were shops on the site at the time, but tell us about the, the genesis of Norellan Town Centre. The story was that you know, we, we had seen how retail developed uh, in other regions, and we were building a lot of apartments and units. And, what really got me involved with retail was I was sick of building apartments in units because of the maintenance and the, the detailed work that goes in there and the dealing with the public a lot. And, and so we started to look around for different opportunities and I, I'd seen a, a five acre parcel at Norellan and had just recently bought this property on the Northern Road, which is only just up the road from Norellan. And I was building a front fence and a new home and Tony knew my father and family uh, Tony Perich and, uh, and and saw me building the fence and he pulled over and said, you're doing it all wrong, this post's too high, that fit, there's not this right, it's blah, 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 blah. So I said, I said, you're a dairy farmer and big in the cattle and own land, would you be interested in doing a joint venture with me in a shopping centre at Norellan? And then he thought about it and he said, I know that site. He said, I know that's a really good site. So over the bonnet we sort of talked a few things and I said, look, my father's overseas at the moment, but when he gets back, um, you know, we'll come and see your dad and we'll, we'll do the deal. And that's how it started. And so on a handshake over the bonnet, we said, let's be partners and the rest is history. 
And I think you were 24 at the time. I was 24. I had just got married, literally a few months earlier. And, and uh, we were, you know, we were, we were living on a 90-acre property, which we still have here today. And there's a good example. I mean, you know, this property was... I won't tell you what I paid for it because you'll cry. But, but it's worth a lot of money today. But it's taken, you know, 40 years uh, to get to this point. And I also read that the, one of the other reasons for doing retail was if you looked at the local catchment, all the residents really had to go to Campbelltown to get what they needed or even sure. further into the CBD. So you acquired the site. Uh, I think it took five or six years thereabouts to, to build it open. We bought it in 19, late 1988, yeah. uh, 89. And then, um, you know, the, the plan was the first five acres with, uh, with uh, some old shops who we were going to knock them down. And then, you know, the joint venture said, well, you know, we really could do better than this. The area was growing. The, the secret was that, that there had been new freeways or new highways being built to Norellan. So Norellan's a bit like Rome. All the roads lead there. There's five major interroads and they all intersect at Norellan. And so that's been there since the 18th century, right? Um, that was the only way to Melbourne. And so uh, government had built you know, new roads bypassing Campbelltown to Norellan and it was a, a new growth corridor. And so we took the vision to say that let's buy everything around these five acres and let's just you know, amalgamate, amalgamate, amalgamate and, and grow the centre and, and that was part of the vision. We had the land rezoned because it was employment land but the key difference was that, that we had approached council and government to say, look, as a lead developer, we can promise X, Y, and Z and deliver it. Now, you can wait with the other stuff or we're ready to spend our money now. And so the first 12 million bucks that we spent there, and back then that was a lot of money in 94, um, we got the first stage up. And what did that look like in the practical sense, the first stage, how many tenancies, how many shops? What was this? I didn't have a lot of experience in retail, but we were, we thought we were excellent builders. And, uh, and you know, we knew the construction game and had, uh, you know, tradesmen at our, at our sort of, you know, the, a team that we could work, we had consultants, et cetera. But the retail game was a little new and we actually opened the first 8,400 square metres with nearly no shops leased in front of Woolworths, right? And so um, there was probably eight specialty stores open and we actually thought we did a good job. <laughs> and then we slowly leased it, but, you know, been in a high growth area. The area was under under serviced, under supplied. Camden is restricted because of the floods, um, and so Campbelltown was another, you know, 20 minutes away, um, and it had its own major centres. But um, we, we had a vision to build a, you know, the biggest mall we could build, and and uh, and all on one level. And we built it ourselves. That was the secret. You know, we did it ourselves. We leased it ourselves. We designed it ourselves, and we managed it ourselves. And that's why we were so hands-on was, was part of the success. And it opened in 1995. I read that there was a huge reception to it from, from locals in the area. What, where did you take it next? So you had that early success with it. It had been seven years in construction and, and development. How did you go about building those stages around it to, to get it to become what it is today? Yeah, well, we had master planned the whole centre and so the idea was to build a supermarket with some specialty shop support. Uh, and then we built the DDS. Uh, but our mistake was, and we were learnt the hard way, was we should have just built all under basement parking and built the centre on top. So the second stage, we did that. And, you know, we kept allowing for uh, development of subsequent stages. And so the vision was always to be a two DDS and two supermarket base centre. 
Um, and you know, as as we got uh, better at it, uh, we, we we were more and more success. And then the funding environment, you touched on it there, so the initial 12 million, I think, from CBA for the initial opening, then you went back to ANZ for 32, Suncorp for 100, and then back to CBA for 284 million. Fast forward over the past, say, two decades since that time, how have you been able to build it and continually stabilise the shopping centre to get it to, to where it is today? It's obviously an enormous precinct worth a circa 750, 800 mil. Yeah, the key success is that if you can buy something with your own money and not have any debt on it, and then try to pre-lease, which is what we did, to national tenants, um, you know, the banking side of it um, uh, comes easy. And so the idea is to have no debt on the land, you know, finance the, uh, the construction. We were building the construction ourselves. Um, the banks were very good to us. But the, the problem was that we were capital hungry and so the banks sort of was, you know, to any one family they were very nervous about giving a lot of money. And that's why we changed banks because we said, look, we don't want to pay you back, we want to borrow some more. Um, and uh, they, they wrestled with that because it's an environment that is really run by the, you know, the larger trusts like the Westfields and the Stocklands and the Lend Leases of the world. Not too many private developers build centres of that scale. And so they were nervous about capability and ability. Um, and and uh, as we grew the centre and the cash flow uh, started to come in, it was also in a time of environment that interest rates, you know, were, were low. Uh, that helped us a lot, you know. So um, it was, a, it was a, a timing of a number of factors coming together. Eight and a half thousand odd square metres when it first opened, then to 20, then to 40, now at, I think 71,000. 71, what have been the challenges over the last 25 or so years with that asset? Look, um, <laughs> did we go fast enough? It's been difficult to prove to major operators out there that Norellan is as good as anywhere else. And when those tenancies come out to Norellan, they actually, we've broken records on, on most, most, uh, most tenancies, you know, like if I take Kmart for instance, you know, it was top five in the country in turnover and it still is to this day. Um, you know, many stores that didn't think they'd make it, when they come there, they end up being either the first best day's trade that they've ever had and, and then, you know, the success of the trading. The other important thing is that a lot of the tenants that we did deals with 30 years ago are still there today. Right? Not many centres can do that. And so our secret is that, you know, we're not aggressive with the rents we, and we're not obsessed with the value of the property. We're more obsessed with retaining and, and making sure that the businesses are there are viable, right? rather than turn them over all the time to maintain value. And just if you could give us a, a sense of the scale and the size of the centre today, 71,000 square metres, obviously 12 million visitors per year. How many tenants and, and, and where do you think you can take it? It's an unusual site that we bought the land across the road as well and we bridge linked it. Uh, that was a, a big deal. Like the, south of Parramatta, there is no bridges anywhere uh, in Western Sydney. And so that was very novel for its day and still is. And, uh, you know, we've got 150,000 square metres of land. So we're, we're at a ratio of one to one, we can virtually double the centre. Um, but you know, things like mixed use developments, apartments above, uh, entertainment precincts, all of that sort of thing is, is where it's all evolving. You know, they're, they're, they're living um, um, lifestyle centres, restaurants, et cetera. And so you know, the success of 
grow in all of that is being adaptable and change to the environment. Um, and that, that's part of the success that we recognise where trends are going and, and we develop uh, that way on one level. Just one more on Norellan. How have you seen the retail landscape evolve and, and what are the challenges that you're grappling with at the moment? There's obviously the online v bricks and mortar debate, but, but where, where, where does it come from and where's it going to, do you think? Look, retail never sleeps, you know, and, and tenancies that are popular today in five years' time are either obsolete or they've got to reinvent themselves. Um, it's, a, it's challenging and that is tough. Um, you know, the trends at the moment is lifestyle and, and restaurants and, um, um, you know, the experience. Um, our goal is to keep you there more than two hours. So an average spend, say, in Relin is about $42. You know, the longer I can keep you there. So things like having really good mother's amenities, you know, having really good bathrooms, things that you don't sort of think, well, why is that important? Why do I care about that? But, you know, if you've got a mother that's got a breastfeed and, you know, and all of a sudden she, she can't, well, she's going to go home, right? But if I can keep you there longer and happier, you'll spend more. And so that, that's, the, that's been the challenge for us, but, and we think we've done it pretty well. So we've delved into your background and into Norellan Town Centre. I thought we'd delve into other aspects of your business career. You've been heavily involved in property development and property investment more broadly over the past decade or so. What, what has been the approach to diversify away from just having Norellan into pursuing development projects, subdivision projects in particular? The business you're in, uh, defines how well you can do. And so land development and, and buying land ahead of the game can make spectacular returns. Not because I'm clever or better at it than anybody else, but if you're ahead of the game, the heavy lifting is done by, by the asset itself. And so I don't know too many properties or too many businesses that can, can do what property does. Um, and it just has a, a natural way of, uh, of growing exponentially because it's a necessary item. Everyone has to live somewhere. And um, you know, large scale subdivisions in New South Wales have not been done very well. And so we did a lot of study tours with the, the Perich family as well in the 90s and the early 2000s. We did them in the States and we did them in, in all around Australia. And the best example we found was in, in Western Australia where they had pre-master plan five and 10,000 lot subdivisions. And I'd never seen that before. And so these large communities all around Perth were set out for the next 30, 40 years. Well, Sydney's never done that. And so we recognised that, you know, government had recognised that and they created what's called the Northwest and the Southwest sectors. And so they put a boundary around Sydney and they said, well, these where these master plans go. And so to their credit, they designed the blueprint of Sydney in the early 2000s. I recognised that early and I recognised that from you know, the back of Liverpool to Norellan, potentially the airport, and it wasn't announced at the time, had enormous opportunities. Where else could Sydney grow? And so, you know, my famous saying is sewer is king. Um, and so if you follow the how uh, an area will be serviced, that's where the logical place will be developed. And so studying areas uh, in this region is why we bought here. And I recognised that with the Maris brothers. And so they had a thousand acres that was bequested to them in 1923 from Thomas Donovan, uh, who was an industrialist in Sydney. And um, he gave them the land on the proviso that he built a school for, for you know, um, uh, country students, et cetera, to come. And so I had a deep connection there because I was a boarder there as well. I sat on their board. 
and they had been trying to get their land rezoned, etc., without much success. And so, um, you know, government was investing a lot of money in infrastructure, um, uh, Camden Valley Way, Brinjelli Road, Northern Road, etc. Rail was only a dream at the time. Um, and, and, and so Mara said, look, you know, we, we structured a deal to say that if I can get this master planned and rezoned for you, we will develop it for you. You own the land and we'll, we'll split the profits. And, and that, that's the deal that was, that was done. It took a long time and a lot of trust. Um, the joke was that it had to be canon law. And so with canon law, you have to get the Vatican to approve the deal. And so Tony and I thought we were partners with the Pope and, the, and God. Um, you know, it's been a, um, a, a tremendous success for both Maris brothers, which we're very proud of, and all that money goes back in the community. And we did okay out of it as well. And when you went on those study tours, whether it was locally or whether it was interstate or, or even internationally, what did you see that these master plan communities were doing or weren't doing well that you wanted to do with your first one with? Look, great question. You know, what we immediately saw was um, in the 80s, in the 70s, a lot of lots that were cut up in Western Sydney would have sloping land. And so you'd have one block and then a neighbour with no retaining wall. And so if you look at all of our subdivisions, and we've developed over 4,000 lots uh, in this region, there's no lot over 3% fall. So we give level blocks, right? So Western Australia had been doing that for 20 years. No one in Sydney had ever built dividing walls in the subdivision uh, retaining. So all the site costs and all the unknown are taken away. Um, the second thing was, um, you know, walking trails, and amenity in a master plan community is very important, right? There's the guarantee of doing that. And so where you see ad hoc developments where there's half a road built, there's no trees, there's no footpaths, no amenities, no community centre, um, you know, what, what a large master plan community can bring is, is all of those services on, um, and, and all that amenity, um, you know, good internet, all of that stuff. The other important thing that we do, you won't see one aerial in our subdivision. So if you see aerial stuck on the top of a home, you won't see that anywhere at Gregory Hills or at Emerald Hills. And so we've put in all the uh, facilities uh, through Opticom that provides you all the digital uh, and internet service, uh, your phone service, your uh, uh, everything all on, in your garage, which eliminates uh, the need to have uh, aerials. So they're simple things, but uh, they make a difference. One of the other unique aspects, I think, to your developments is not only do you do the residential part, but you also do quite a lot of the commercial part, the, the shopping centre and the retail, and then you also keep those assets rather than flipping them or, or selling them to, to others. What's been the benefit of, of that approach, doing the, the residential part, but actually caring about the commercial aspects of the development? Well, they work both ways. The, the town centre becomes very important, so we've developed quite a few of them now. They're the heart of the whole community. You know, they need to shop three times a week. And so it's more an amenity to sell more land. Uh, but then eventually there are outstanding uh, depreciation uh, uh, benefits uh, when, you, when you buy a property initially and build it. Um, being in the game, we have synergies where we'll know a lot of the tenants, we'll know a lot of the major tenants, and so they follow us, they know that we'll deliver. Um, and so, and they're, you know, they're, they're excellent uh, cash flow investments. And just when it comes to the residential side of the business, just to give a, a sense of scale of it, as you said, 2,800 plus lots with Gregory Hills. Then more recently, there's been 7,000 plus lots in the Lowe's Creek development in Bringelli alongside Cameron Bray, the, the JV partner. 
When you're undertaking a, a development of 7,000 lots, where do, you, where do you start? Are the fundamentals the same or...? Look, they are. The fundamentals are the same, but the key is to master plan it properly. Uh, you know, we've, we've picked up and learnt a lot of things that you should or shouldn't do. You know, lot sizes have gone from, you know, 500 square metres or 15 lots a hectare. There used to be 12 lots a hectare. And government now is saying, look, as a minimum, they're 25 lots a hectare to 35 lots a hectare. So our, our uh, we call it Mount Maryland Estate, um, has 7,000 dwellings in there. It's a 50-50 joint venture with the Hazlitt family, uh, Cameron Bray. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a variety of lot, lots that, that will be, you know, as low as 150 square metres. But, the, you know, when you're developing something that small, amenity becomes critical um, and very clever design becomes critical. You can't just sell a block of 150 or 200 square metres to a, to a mum and dad. You have to build the product. That's where the market is heading and it's about affordability. You know, land sizes are just shrinking but you're getting better at doing it. Lifestyles have changed. You know, no one wants to mow lawns anymore um, but they've got the park across the road if they want to use it and it's got to be a high quality, good, you know, amenity. Your son Anthony was, was talking about that earlier where I think the lots have gone to 150, 144 square yeah. metres, I think he said, down from 450 and 500, right. but they've gone up yeah. and obviously the, the living spaces have, have changed. I just want to ask you about partnering with, with external parties. Obviously there was the connection with Maris Brothers, uh, Cameron Bray, you've done a couple of developments with. What do you look for in a, in a JV partner? Look, firstly, you, you've got to be with like-minded people. You know, um, if, if people and partners don't have the same vision and the same ethics that you have, well, you know, they can be the smartest people in the, in the world, but it's not going to work. And so, you know, David Hazlitt was very good friends with my father. Uh, they were Rotarians and always wanted to do something together. So we had partnered with them for at least 25 years. And the same with the Perrish family, you know, very ethical. Um, both deals have been done basically on handshakes. And, you know, the idea is to say, look, this is how it's going to be and, and, and never discuss uh, the principles of a partnership again. Uh, they're the best partnerships. Um, and the secret has been that, you know, we're both like minded. And before we move on, in terms of some of the other developments that you've done, there's been quite a lot of residential subdivisions that were spoken about, but there's also been other shopping centre assets like Emerald Hills uh, as well. What, what do you look for in terms of when you're developing one of these assets? What do you look for in the fundamentals of the, the land itself or the site itself? Look, the, the location and the accessibility is very important. If you look at our assets and, and, and the centres that we own or the pad sites, they're elevated, they're very accessible, they're well anchored and, and have um, um, you know, ease of getting in from the car park directly into the retail. We tried to make our centres as if I'm the shopper. So would I go there? Right? Would I eat there? And, and if I wouldn't do it, why would I expect someone else to do it? And so, you know, the mothers with prams are extremely important, right? Are the gardens clean? You know, just the simple things that you would expect um, uh, make a big difference. Key lessons for success in property development and, and investment, what are they? Look, you know, my eldest son, Dominic, and I talk about this a lot. And, you know, he, he follows the Warren Buffett um, um, uh, uh, logic. And, you know, the power of compound is phenomenal. 
you take $1,000 today and compound it out over 50 years, for the first 15 years, you don't think it's doing much. But at the back end, the power of compound is phenomenal. And so if you've got an asset that's growing at 4% a year, and, and, uh, and it's only at 50% geared, one day it'll be geared at 10%. And so the asset does the heavy lifting for you. But if you can buy it, cash the land, and then fund it externally is the best model. Let's talk about a couple of other interests of yours, both in the business life and, and in your personal life. The food and beverage chain, Max Brenner, you purchased that from administrators in 2018. Your wife, Irene, encouraged you to buy it. What was, what was, it, what was going through your mind at the time? Look, we're a family business and we're always looking for diversity. We've done very well in property and in retail and in land subdivisions and construction. And so we wanted to have a bit of a different portfolio. So we ventured out into two different businesses. One is the food and beverage business. Done right, those businesses can return very good returns year in and year out. But they've got it. what attracted to us, and particularly for my wife Irene, is you know, to systemise the business. If you look at great companies in the world like McDonald's or Starbucks, it's not particularly the product that's very good. And I mean that sincerely, and you know, I, 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 I visit them. Um, it's the systems behind them that allow them to grow to scale. And so the Max Brenner brand with a, um, with a, uh, it's a vertically integrated business with a, a bakery that sits behind it. Um, and the, the goal is that we bought um, Asia Pacific as the rights to part of the, the business. Um, and so we can get scale right throughout Asia. Asia doesn't have the experience of the cakes, the coffees um, and the chocolate the way that we know it. And, and they just love that product, right? So the opportunities there are endless. I mean, you know, probably a third of the world lives in that food bowl. Um, and they're, they're underserviced. The second business that we did is the resource recovery business, which my eldest son runs. And so that business is on a, a licensed uh, property um, here uh, near us that takes in uh, uh, quite a few councils through, throughout Sydney. And so they bring in the, the you know, it might be broken trees or uh, all, all the different green waste. Um, so we get paid to take it in and we recycle it. Um, turn it into garden fertilisers and then sell it again. And so I don't know too many businesses get paid on the way in and paid on the way out, but it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a future uh, business that we think has enormous potential with uh, recycling and as the, you know, all the, 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 the things that uh, on the challenges that go with that over the next few years. Um, you know, landfill tips just don't work. And so you know, we think it's a good business similar to the food and beverage. In terms of Max Brenner, when you acquired the, the rights, as you said, to the Asia-Pacific side of the business in 2018, what was the, where was the business headed at that time? What sort of condition was it in and have you gone about the, the turnarounds? Look, the business um, um, peaked at about 60-odd stores and about $70 million turnover. It was very novel. Um, and, and very different to Australia. You've got to remember that in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, people didn't know what a cappuccino was in this country and, and, and coffee was not, you know, it was, it was 43 bean, basically. Um, and so as, as palettes got more sophisticated, uh, that brand had a very novel idea and a very good concept. It lost its way because it never reinvented itself and, and retail after 15 or 20 years can't be the same thing. So if you look at every great brand around the world, they're not the same as today. Like my sons, 
no KFC is KFC. I know it is Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> and, and so they reinvent themselves, they reinvent their products, etc. And Max Brenner lost its way to a product that is 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 still touches a lot of people's hearts to this day. And Irene and I travel a lot around the world, and I reckon one in five people know that brand that I would say, have you ever been or visited a Max Brenner? And they say, yes. And I mean, it's only a small brand. It's not Coca-Cola. Um, and so we thought we could do something with that brand. And so um, that's part of the appeal. And have you gone about, so you, you get the keys to the business, pandemic hits in February, March 2020, obviously yes. <laughs> not ideal. Yes. How have you gone about turning that around in the space of the past five years, but in particular the past, say, 18 months since? Look, it's a business that, that was losing money, basically, um, and, and because it didn't have scale and it didn't have enough capital behind it to grow. And, and so, you know, the window of a store might be there for five or seven years. And so you have to make your money back in that period. Um, we currently now employ, at the time there was 350 employees, there's now about 600. Um, and so we've bought a new site at uh, Landsvar where we're gonna build a new head office. And we want, to, um, we want to expand the business to the next level in order for it to grow even further. But, um, you know, it, it needs to be systemized um, and, and reinvent the, 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 the look and the feel and never lose its true identity um, and, then, and then hopefully grow them throughout Australia and throughout Asia. We opened our first store in Queenstown, New Zealand, but you know we opened it one week before COVID and so it's been really tough to get that going. And the same with Australia. I mean, you just cannot find good staff and there is massive shortage. And so we're working on programs to retain people, to train people, to be a place of choice. Um, uh, because you know they just shut the gates to uh, immigration, and uh, you just couldn't get it. You just can't get. You just can't get staff. We'll talk about the future of that business and some of the other ventures that you're involved in shortly with Mark. But I understand there's also Bringelli Pastoral. Tell us about that side of the business, if you could. Yeah, look, we've got about. We're sitting on about 1,500 acres here. I like to talk acres, not hectares. Um, and and as a result, you know, we've been here for a long time. Uh, we have a, a, you know, a modest farming operation, so there's, there's about 500 head of cattle here. We, we grow about uh, two to 3,000 bales a year of either oats or, or, or um, uh, uh, hay and um, uh, millet. Um, and so we, you know, the surplus we sell and we use it to future-proof ourselves because farming can be very volatile, as you know. You know, there's, there's, and I say this story, most people are surprised by it, but there's, there's about 29 million cows in Australia, beef cows, right? And it's, it's about one for one uh, in population. There's only 29 million beef cattle in America, yet there's 340,000, 340 million people there. And so, you know, we, we are actually uh, a big cattle producer. I mean, we're not as big as obviously South America uh, and Brazil and those places. But Australia produces some of the best quality meat in the world. And so that's very attractive to us to, to, um, to get that standard that, uh, you know, that uh, we, we uh, think uh, Australia deserves and we consume it ourselves. So we enjoy it. Would be remiss of me to not ask you about your philanthropic endeavours, of which there's been many over the years. There's the Vitoco Charitable Foundation, uh, which donated through yourself $5 million to the Powerhouse Parramatta Museum Project last year. Talk to us about the, the donation and then how it's being directed to the two programs. 
Yeah, look, that's important to us. Like I sit on the board of the Ingham Institute and have for 20-odd years. Uh, and it, back then it was the Southwest Sydney Area Health Service and it sort of evolved. And, and it's very easy and very important to give to medical. Um, and we thought, you know, not the arts and um, the powerhouse is something very unique. Um, it is the biggest um, uh, cultural uh, expenditure that this government has done since the, either the Opera House or Sydney Harbour. So it's a billion dollar investment. It will change the face of Parramatta and Western Sydney. But the big thing that attracted us was they wanted to showcase Western Sydney. And so that's, you know, that's our roots. Um, and so there's two projects there. There is the Legacy Project, which will showcase um, you know, a lot of the uh, different businesses or individuals that have made a difference in Southwest or Western Sydney. Uh, and so th that program runs for the next 12 years, which we'll be a part of. Uh, and the other uh, project is the uh, Vitoco Kitchen, which will showcase um, uh, the best culinary chefs uh, in, in Australia and, and the world. Um, and so, you know, it will be, you know, teaching uh, young students why to get into that. Uh, the, the Western Sydney is the food bowl of, of Sydney. Um, there's a lot of market producers out here. There are wonderful stories, wonderful families like the Ingham family that basically put chicken on the table or the Perich family that, you know, d uh, d puts uh, milk in your fridge. Um, those stories need to be told. Based on the evidence of the... Uh the hospitality you've provided today, I'm, I've got no doubt that, that that'll be really well received. Just on philanthropy, and, and there's not enough time to get through all of the, the various endeavours that you've involved yourself in, but why, why are you so passionate about it? Look, you can't just take, and I try and instil that in our family. Whilst you're in a room that's very uh, elaborate, we, we try to live modestly, and, and, and you know, I will never ask somebody to do something I wouldn't do myself. And so, you know, we've been fortunate enough both health-wise and financially to, to be a success in the area. You can't just take from a region, you must give back. You know, I strongly believe that, that you know, it's not a God-given right to rock up to a hospital because I pay my taxes and I expect someone to, 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 to fix me up and not have to pay for it and just leave. Um, you know, there's a civic duty to give back. Governments can't do everything, right? You know, you have to take some responsibility for yourself and we try to live our life that way. A couple more questions to finish because you've been very generous with your time. Third generation of the Vitoco family now involved in the business through your sons Anthony and Dominic. How important is that to you in, in creating that legacy? It's extremely important. You know, my youngest son Anthony is my right-hand man. He, he looks after all operational and construction things, etc. My eldest son is also involved with the business, particularly on the investment side and the resource recovery business. Uh, they have their own families and, uh, and, and my wife Irene is heavily involved. She keeps me grounded. And uh, uh, the four of us with their partners um, and, and the team that we have uh, is very important, right? We have some very good people who've been very loyal to our family for a long time, you know, and, and it's like I said earlier in the interview, being like-minded and, and the same goals, the same values makes it easy. Speaking of your family, one of the things that I admire is not only do you and your wife Irene still live out in southwestern Sydney, but so does your sons and the extended family. Why, why have you done that? Why have you still, you've obviously been so successful in the area, a lot of people would have moved into the city, into the eastern suburbs. You've stayed out here with the people, it's your place, your towns. Why is that so important? The simple answer is tradition. 
You know, like I named my son Dominic after my father. He named his son Dominic after himself and my father. And so tradition is very important to us. Um, and I think, you know, that family unity, and it's, you know, Western Sydney has the best of, I can be in town in less than 50 minutes or I can be in the snow in three hours or on the beach. And so it's a good environment, I think, to bring up your families um, and uh, it's a good work-life balance. You've had an incredibly diversified career. What are your key achievements, do you think? What are you most proudest of? <laughs> um, look, firstly, my family uh, and, and, and where I come from is very important to us. Uh, you know, I'd like to leave the place better than I found it. We, we think we've changed the lives of many people in southwestern Sydney. There's nothing more pleasing than going on a Saturday morning and visit the shopping centre or go to one of the parks that we've built and they're just absolutely thumping. And, you, and no one will know who you are and why and the hours and the days and the toil you spent doing something. But to see the pleasure on people's faces, to just assume that, you know, they, they do go about their lives is really rewarding for me. Keys for success in general, we spoke about keys for success in terms of property, but the keys for success in your business life, what have they been? Firstly, your integrity is very important. And so when we look at people that we want to employ or work with us, you know, I don't necessarily need the smartest person in the room, um, but if his integrity is not there, I'll spend my life watching him. And, and having to be careful. And so, you know, if the integrity is there and the honesty is there, then the rest can be taught, right? And, and, and the ability and all of that uh, can come later. But um, for me, um, you know, if, if, if you're dishonest or, um, you know, you don't have the right work ethic, well, that's half the battle lost. Final question, what does the future look like? Is there anything that you haven't achieved yet that you want to achieve, any industries that you're not in that, that you want to be in? Look, that, that's a great question and, and, and yes, there are, there are many more things uh, to come about when you just, you know, like I'm 59. The industries that we're in always evolve. Uh, if I take Norellan Town Centre, you know, never in our wildest dreams did we think that mixed use would be on top of the centres. We're now planning four, five hundred dwellings, whatever we think will work, you know, working together with uh, local authorities and what's permissible. Um, and so they're great, they're great opportunities. Um, you know, land subdivisions are complex now. Um, you know, land blocks are getting very diverse and the mix is very diverse. People's expectations are very high. Affordability is a big problem. Um, and the biggest issue that Western Sydney or, or Sydney has is, is the lack of supply. It's as simple as that. There's great planning being done, but without good infrastructure, um, and you know, we've got some of the best infrastructure that I'll ever see. There's a brand new airport being built, you know, rail being built, uh, roads that are being built. There's a hundred billion being spent in this region. And uh, you know, there are opportunities that are limitless, are absolutely limitless. And, and part of the, the secret for us is to build a good team that can actually outlive those projects. Arnold Vitocco, one of the most extraordinary Australian business stories. Thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Rob.